Well, this is our seventh message in our opening series for 2011 on the book of Genesis called Beginnings. And last week, Pastor Brad spoke on Genesis 11 and the story of the tower, uh, the, the men and women who decided instead of heeding God's command, instead of being fruitful, multiplying, and then filling the earth, they decided instead to isolate themselves into one area, build the city with a tower. And they did this for two reasons. Uh, they did this, first of all, to make their name great. And they also did this to keep themselves from being scattered out among the land as God had intended. And so we saw that, that God intervened into this story so that his promise, so that his intention would in fact not be thwarted. And we actually saw that this was actually an act of grace on behalf of God. Now, today's story follows on the heels of this story in, in Genesis chapter 11, and today's story centers on the concept of blessing. Now, blessing is, is a prominent theme in the scriptures. It's actually something that we see a lot in our day and age, too. We talk a lot about, about blessing. And my guess is if this is your first time to church in a long, long time, or if you haven't dusted off your Bible in a really long time, or maybe even if you've only read a couple of books of the Bible in your, your entire life, you probably have some sort of idea of what blessing is means and how it operates in the scriptures. I mean, there's lots and lots of examples of blessing being used in the scripture. If we did a, a search of it, I'm guessing our results would be a bit overwhelming. You think about the life and teaching of Jesus. Uh, he talked about blessings a ton. I mean, in Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, he's preaching on the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about blessings all over the place. Blessed are those who do this. Blessed are those who do that. We see blessings in uh, family lineage. We see God blessing people. We see people blessing people. And even in the book of Genesis that we've seen the last couple of weeks, we see blessing mentioned several times here and there. The Old Testament's filled with blessing. Now, in today's world, I hear the word blessing a lot too, especially in the Christian community. You can't go very far without seeing someone talk about blessing, wanting blessing, praying for blessing. I mean, there's stores called blessings. We, we have a store called, called blessing. Uh, when people sneeze, someone will give out a blessing. We, we've got blessing in that way too. People on their, on their voicemail or on their email, sometimes they'll sign off with a blessing. They'll give a blessing through email. And, and there's nothing wrong with any of these things, I don't think. I, I think the point I want to make is the understanding of how we use blessing today is massively different from how blessing was used in the Bible. One of the best examples I can think of is a story later in Genesis of, of Jacob and Esau. Jacob actually conned his brother Esau out of his father's blessing. Isaac was going to give a blessing. Jacob stole it from Esau. Now, first off, I have no concept for how you can steal a blessing. How do you steal that from someone? Uh, secondly, why couldn't Esau just, or excuse me, why couldn't Isaac just give another blessing? Well, sure, that one was for you, Isaac, but, or uh, Esau, but I gave it to Jacob, but I'll just give you another one. Who doesn't have another blessing to give? Oh, we get a sense that blessing is way bigger than how we use it today. And in the scriptures, it's, it's of paramount importance. We see that there's life through blessing. We see that it actually almost takes on a shape of its own. That characters in the scriptures who are blessed by God or blessed by their family, these become the major characters in scriptures. These are the ones that end up fulfilling this blessing. And the antithesis of blessing is the curse. And we see time and time again when, when people are cursed, when individuals are cursed, that is the opposite of blessing, and we see that carry out in their life as well. But we, we don't usually use blessing this way. 
We don't think of blessings in terms of, of something that can't be taken back, of a blessing that is in fact going to have a will of its own, or of a curse is bringing some sort of terrible finality to someone's life. Uh, we like to think of blessings as sounding nice. Blessings sound sweet. They're Kodak moments. They bring unity. They bring smiles. They bring hope. Last night, I was putting my one-year-old son to bed. And as I usually do, I, I, uh, last night, I, I gave him a short prayer. Sometimes I read him a Bible story, but he's usually more intent on flipping to another another story than the one that I'm trying to hone in on. And so I, I, was, I was praying with my son Hudson, and as I put him down in his crib, I started to think, more mentally than actually verbally, I started to think about blessing him, giving him a blessing from God. And I stopped short last night because I thought to myself, do I really know what I'm doing? What does God's blessing actually mean for his life? It sounds good. I'd love my son to be blessed but I don't know if I really know what this actually means. I don't even know if I can handle the cost of what that blessing might mean on his life. And regardless of of what you think about blessing, regardless of what I think about blessing, blessing was a major function in the scriptures. And it's something that's important for us because we understand that as people of God, we have the opportunity to enter into God's blessing. We have an opportunity to live out his blessing if we so choose. Uh, We see that there's markers, massive divisions in the scriptures of those who choose to be obedient, those who receive God's blessings, and those who don't. And today's story is very much about this same theme, and it starts in Genesis chapter 11. And it involves a man by the name of Abram. Abram later, his name is changed by God to Abraham. We know him more as Father Abraham, but he began with the name of Abram. He had a wife named Sarai. And as we know, many of us who, who grew up in the church, we know what their legacy of their story. But they started off just like ordinary people in the time of antiquity. And so if you have your, your Bible, I'd encourage you to open to Genesis chapter 11 as we're going to look at the story of Abram who accepted a call and blessing from God and he was forever changed by it. And as we're about to see, God's blessing wasn't always roses in his life. Now last week, uh, Brad, Brad finished his message in verse 9 of uh, chapter 11, and that really shouldn't surprise us too much because we see in verse 10 that we have a genealogy listed. And so not only are genealogies difficult to read through, but they generally mark a, a very sharp division in the Scriptures. And so we see in our Bibles, beginning in, in chapter 11, verse 10, that we have an account of Shem. Now Shem was the, one of the sons of Noah, and we see his line uh, drawn out here. So we see that uh, Shem had a son, and then it follows uh, his son's line to, to one of the sons. But we see that each of these individuals that are named, it says that they had other sons and daughters. And so we begin to feel some momentum building here. And we should be reminded as readers of, of Genesis of God's command of saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And even though the tower story kind of put that filling the earth on halt, we see that God scattered people, and now we see more and more people increasing. And we begin to feel this momentum of saying, hey, this is good. We've got lots and lots of people inhabiting the earth. God's blessings coming about. This is good news. But as we follow this genealogy, we get to uh, verse 26. And, uh, and we, we hear, or excuse me, verse 24 actually is when he's first named, we hear about a man named Nahor, and he became the father of Terah. And we see uh, that we have a pause here in the story, because instead of simply listing Terah's 
one son and what happened after here, we actually get a little bit of a break in the story. And we see that we have three sons who are listed in Tehran. So we, we kind of get a sense of, wait, something important is about to happen. We're going to have a character shift. We're going to have a genre shift here. And that's exactly what happens. Uh, we have three individuals who are named as sons of Terah. This is verse 26. It says, Terah lived 70 years. He became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And verse 27, this is the account of Terah. So we're, we're introduced to the story, and you've got the text there up on the screen. And I'll, I'll just kind of summarize what happens to this man. Uh, instead of having just one son, we see that he has these three. And we also find out that his son, Haran, he dies probably prematurely. We find out he dies before his father does. We don't know why he died, how he died, if it was a good thing or a bad thing. We just know that he's no longer on the scene. But he has a son, and his son's name is Lot. And uh, Lot comes into the story. That's Abram's nephew later on. We also see that uh, his daughter, Milcah, he ends up marrying Nahor. So Nahor marries his niece, which is kind of weird when you think about it. But back in biblical times, there weren't six billion people and you kind of kept families together, and this was a natural, normal thing to do. And so right off in this story, we see, well, we have some interesting family dynamics here. We have two sons, uh, both are married, and we would think with kind of the momentum of, of this story that we would now hear the listing of the sons of these two individuals. But instead, we're left with this very, very odd statement. The first time that we see this in Scripture, we see it in verse 30, that Sarai was barren, she had no children. Now, for those of us who know the story, we can kind of smile to ourselves because we think, aha, later on she does have a child. And later on we see that this is the line that goes on to Christ and that we see uh, redemption and restoration happen. And this is God's promises coming to fulfillment. But for these individuals at this time, this was a major obstacle. And you think about God's command again, be fruitful and multiply it and fill the earth. And now for the first time, we, well, not for the first time actually, but we have a major, major obstacle to it. But for the first time, this isn't a sin obstacle. This isn't them choosing not to have children. This is a physiological obstacle. Sarai can't have kids. We don't know why. It's just stated that bluntly. And when you think about Abram and Sarai trying to have kids, you might be able to identify that with that yourself whether your own story or someone you know, this desperation of wanting to have children. And the author states it twice. Just very, very bleak words. Sarai was barren. She had no children. And so we're left with this, with this obstacle in the story, kind of this roadblock, and there's really only three ways to get by this obstacle back in, in their day and age. Sarai needs to be healed somehow. She needs to be physiologically healed of this condition so that she can conceive and have children. She needs a blessing, which we'll explore later on. We understand the power of these words of blessing. Or Abram needs to take another wife and have a descendant through that woman. That's, that's really kind of the only options that we have here. And so the story continues on, and we see that Terah leads his homeland of Ur, and he takes a couple of his family members with him. He takes Abram, Sarai, and his grandson Lot. And they move out uh, towards Canaan, and they end up settling in this place called Haran. Now, I don't think there's any sort of correlation between the son who passed away and, and this city. It looks like it's some sort of coincidence, but even if it isn't, the author doesn't seem to care too much about that. And again, we don't know why they left, if they were just 
tired of living in the same place and they decided to go somewhere else or something else prompted to them. But we do know that they did leave. And while they were in Haran, at some point, Terah's life ended. And this sets up this well-known scene in chapter 12, verse 1. This is uh, coming from the New International Version. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. So God's words to Abram begin with a command to leave. Three parts here. Leave your country, leave your people, leave your father's household, and go to a place, go to a land that I will show you. Now, we don't know what Abram was thinking there, but if those were the words of God to me in the form of a blessing, I wouldn't be too happy. It starts with leaving. Like, it has a pretty negative connotation there. Everything that you know, Abram, just leave that, and I'm not even going to tell you where to go. I'm going to show you where to go. But then he couples this instruction with with the following blessing, and this this is pretty poetic. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So what we have here is basically an offer. God is saying, if you leave, if you leave these things and you go and you trust me, and and, and I'll provide for you, then I'm going to give you these things. And blessing is prominent here in, in this passage. We see it repeated over and over again. And so if if we can kind of summarize the cost of God's offer, we can do this in three different ways. It begins with land. Land is is the very first thing. And as Andrew Birkinshaw taught us a a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the story of Cain and Abel and what it means to bring your first fruits, land is is incredibly important to to the people of antiquity. Like this is their lifeblood. It's not just their dwelling place, not where they live. The land literally feeds them. It puts food in their stomach whether it feeds the livestock and and that helps their livelihood or whether they're growing crops. So he's saying, your land that you have, that you possess, leave it, go. And instead, I'm going to provide you with land. And it's also interesting that this is kind of the first time that that we hear God giving an individual or a family land. Up to this point, he said, scattered, go. And his relationship to people and land was always of scattering. Go somewhere else, fill the earth, this is what I want. In this case, Uh, God tells Abram, I'm going to give you a place and I'm going to allow you to settle in an area. There's some significance here in that. So that's the first part of his offer. The second part of his offer is people. And by leaving his homeland, Abram is leaving his people. He's leaving his culture. He's leaving his neighborhood. He's leaving everything that he knows. Just like you and I are familiar with the place of Willoughby or Clayton Heights or Alder Grove or Surrey or wherever you're from, uh, he is leaving everything that he knows. So you have to think about his culture and all the things he likes. I mean, maybe it's helpful for you to think about going without coffee. You know, some of these things that, that you treasure, that you like. Looking at the beautiful mountains, loving the traffic on 200th Street. Like, these are things now that he is having to leave. But we see that the trade-off here is that his name will be made great. His name will be made great and he'll be the father of a great nation. Now, unlike the people of Babel, Abram is not making his name great himself we see that God's going to make his name great through Abram. So it's actually God's doing. And that is one of the things that he will receive. He must believe and act, even though he doesn't know how these promises are going to come about. And then the third thing is his household. God says you're going to have to leave your household. 
Now, uh, most people generally understand this as his direct family, which certainly could be the case. There's a number of biblical scholars who I think rightly understand this to mean his family's inheritance as well. Now, inheritance was also very important in biblical times. It's, it's still important in today's day and age, I suppose. But not just in the material aspects. One of the most important things about a family's inheritance is this word again of blessing. So he's saying here, leave your household. And part of that might be, don't rely on your father's blessing. And instead, I will bless you. And the second part of that is, I'm going to make you a blessing to other people. So we see the stakes are, are severe. The stakes are very, very high. And as we know in the story, as we see in the very next verse, verse 4, Abram left as the Lord told him to, and Lot went with him. And so Abram makes his choice. He makes his choice, and this is the part of the story that a lot of us are familiar with. In, in fact, in that very same Bible that, that I read to my son, this story is in there. And, and it just sounds so great. Like God makes him an offer, he accepts it, and his descendants are as numerous as the stars and, and the sand that, that he can see, and everything seems to go out okay. It just, this is great. And, and the principle that you can kind of get from this part of the story is, well, the moral is you make the right God-given choice, and you too, like Abram, will be blessed, and you'll live happily ever after. But the author doesn't start here. This is only a few verses into Abram's story. He provides us with a number of details that provide us with a much different biblical principle. So Abram leaves. He makes his decision at age 75 to leave. And sometimes I wonder how he came to this decision. If after he heard the voice of God, he ran home and he told Sarai, and the two of them laced up their sandals and they said, let's go. Or maybe it took them four months to decide it over. Maybe Abram didn't even tell his wife for quite some time. The author of the story doesn't tell us, but we do know that at some point he left. And so old Abe left with his aging wife who still was barren, and their needy and clingy nephew Lot came along for the trip as well. And they packed up what possessions they had and people who were working for them, probably as servants, and, and they set off. And they end up going towards Canaan. Again, we don't know why they went to Canaan. We don't know if God appeared to, to Abram later on and said, I want you to go to Canaan. We don't know if one of the servants said, hey, I've got a relative in Canaan. Let's stop by there. Or if that's where the animals happened to go. And so they just followed. A lot of these details that we think about in our own life, the biblical author doesn't really seem to care about at all. What we do know is that they headed out in the direction of Canaan. And once they got to Canaan, they found Canaanites living there. Big surprise, right? Canaanites living there in Canaan. But God appears to Abram, and he says, to your offspring, I will give you this land. And so Abram here in verse 7, he hears the voice of God. This is going to be the, the land. This is the land of promise that God is going to give me. And he builds an altar there. But he doesn't stay. He goes further. He goes on to the hills, onto the hills between Bethel and Ai. And, and now he builds an altar between these two towns, and he calls upon the name of the Lord there. But then he keeps going from there too. And he keeps traveling further on and he goes towards a settlement called Negev. Now, I want to pause here in the story for a minute and, and try to see if we can begin to envision and be able to feel how Abram and Sarai must have felt. If we were to look at this with our theological glasses on and, and based on what we know the rest of the story to tell us about Abram and Sarai, we'd probably 
say it in much different terms. But I wonder what a contemporary of Abram and Sarai would have said. So one of their servants, one of their neighbors, someone who saw them in, in their own life. I think they might have described it this way about these people. Terah has died, so Abram is fatherless. Sarai is barren, so they're childless. And they travel around from place to place with no sense of direction, and they're landless. Now, I'm definitely speculating here, but I think that some of his contemporaries might have pitied Abram and Sarai. What did they have? They really had nothing. They had no children. They had no land. They had no inheritance. But yet, they weren't hopeless. They weren't hopeless. I want to credit uh, an author by the name of John Walton, who I've cited a few times throughout this series. Uh, He writes a a great commentary on the book of Genesis. And and he makes a a very good point here at this uh, section of the story. He says, from here on out, and the story is lengthy. This story goes for another 12 or 13 chapters in the book of Genesis. He says, from here on out here with this blessing, we see that every other thing that happens, most every other thing we see, either in advancement of this blessing or we see an obstacle to this blessing. We see the blessing becoming more and more realized with what happens to Abram and Sarai and, and the rest of their clan, or we see a major hurdle that they're somehow going to have to overcome, or that God is going to have to intervene on their behalf. And, and so uh, what, what we see here in, in this instance is that we are, are then left with this principle, this understanding of, of what does this look like? You're blessed by God, and yet there's still hurdles to overcome. There's still adversity that comes in the midst of this time. We don't have a timeline here. We don't know how long they were wandering. We don't know how long it it, it was taking them to figure out. We don't know how many more times God came and confirmed his promise to them or gave them new instructions. But what we do see is that they face obstacle after obstacle after obstacle as they are in the midst of God's blessing. And I think it it forces us to run up to this biblical principle that we see in their life and as we'll continue to see throughout their life. And and this is the principle that emerges from the story, that God's blessing won't always rid you of adversity. God's blessing simply won't always rid you of adversity. It can. Sometimes it will in the future. Sometimes it may happen miraculously in the instance. But it won't always rid you of adversity. And it won't always rid you of adversity now. Now, this doesn't really sound like good news to me when you think about God's blessing. Again, this questions my own interpretation and understanding of what blessing means in my life. Because when I think about God's blessing, I think about answered prayers the way I want them answered. I think about prosperity. I think of advancement. I think of uh, fruitfulness and multiplication and, and things are going well. I actually, when I think about God's blessing, I many times think that this involves no pain and no adversity. That's what I usually think when I think about the blessings of God. But I think that it's very difficult to find biblical rationale for this understanding of blessing. Now, it is true, there are a few points in Scripture where we see that God's blessing to a specific people group, usually Israel, involves some of these things, where they will receive material wealth, and they will receive more land, and we see that blessing is communicated in this way. But that was for a specific time and for a specific people group. More often than not, we see many, many characters who face obstacle after obstacle after obstacle, and yet they're blessed through it. I mean, maybe the best example of this is later on in the book of Genesis with a a man named Joseph. 
I mean, Joseph basically does every single thing right. And the text tells us that God was with him. God was with him. Great. Well, he's thrown, he's thrown into jail. Perfect. God was with him. Well, he's falsely accused of, of committing adultery. That's why he gets thrown in jail. Great. God was with him. Great. He gets thrown into slavery. I mean, just time and time again, you have to think, man, when is God not going to be with him? Maybe it'll go a little bit better for him. And we have many other characters who follow the same pattern. I mean, we can talk about the life and legacy of Jesus. I mean, God was certainly with him. He was God incarnate. And yet, he walked a very, very difficult road. Time and time again through biblical characters, we actually see that this principle comes forward. And it's actually the same way that what happens to Abram. It sounds kind of like this. Go, and I'll show you. Leave, and just trust me. Leave what you have. Keep going forward, and I'll work out the details for you. I will bless you, even though you may still have obstacles in your life. And we see that even though obedient followers choose to be obedient, it doesn't mean that adversity just suddenly ceases from their life. Now, I wonder, going back into the story, into verse 10, I wonder then what Abram must have thought when the famine hit the land. So now he he still has no father, he has no children, And now a severe famine hits the land, and so he ends up going down to Egypt. Again, we don't know if this was God's plan for him to go down to Egypt. We don't know if this was a supernatural famine. We don't know if this is a way of him traveling down that area, or if it was simply just a natural occurrence with the way that God has set up the world. But Abram finds himself down in Egypt, and he makes a choice there. And it's very interesting that the biblical author doesn't tell us a whole lot about what he thinks about this choice, but he chooses to lie. And he, he t- tells his wife, he says, now, Sarai, um, we're going into a foreign place here. And so instead of telling them that we're husband and wife, we're going to say that you're my sister. And, you know, I, I really can't blame Abram too much about this. He's a man who's blessed by God. And so far, he hasn't reaped many benefits of it. Now you're going to a foreign place with a beautiful wife, with people you don't know. I may have made this same mistake myself. No, no offense, Melissa here. But... But So he goes to this place, and you have to think, what was he thinking? As he's in his own tent with no land, no inheritance, no descendant, no family, really. His own wife has now been taken as, as Pharaoh's wife. What must that have felt like? I bet that Abram, like you and I do it sometimes, began to analyze God's promises to him. He may have began to think about ways to justify his actions. He may have thought, well, maybe there are certain things I need to do to speed up this process. And we see later on in the story that he does, in fact, take another woman, and uh, she becomes pregnant. And I can definitely understand where Abram may have been scratching his head, waiting for God's promises to come about, waiting for this blessing to somehow rid him of some of the adversity that he was running into. But God's promises, as we see here, in, in the story of them in Egypt, they're only there for a moment. It must have felt like an eternity for Abram, but God once again decides to intervene, and he brings a plague upon Pharaoh and his household, and, and, they're, and they're kicked out. Now, we, we see here that, that 
Abram very likely may have made a poor choice here. It certainly would have alienated him from the Egyptians, I'm guessing, for the rest of his life. And I'm guessing that he and his wife had a few marital things to work out later on in, in their life. But again, the narrator doesn't seem all that concerned with telling us if this was a good moral choice or a bad moral choice. He doesn't really seem concerned with that at all. It seems to be that his bigger objective for writing this story is to tell us how God is going to overcome. How when each of these obstacles are raised up in Abram's life, that it really doesn't matter what Abram and Sarai do because God is somehow going to intervene. And he is going to, in his perfect timing, rid them of these obstacles that will then fulfill his promises to them. God's blessing at the time was not eliminating their hardships, but he was definitely the source of the endurance that the two of them needed to keep going. Abram was told to leave and that he would be blessed. But we see that God's blessing does not always rid us of adversity. Now, I think that, that Abram's story is probably pretty closely tied to our story. Because we see that there's a cost. There's a cost to following God. A lot of times we don't talk about the cost very well in the Christian community. We talk about blessings in the sense of, of prosperity and goodness and our life getting better. But when we look at the story of Abram, when we look at the story of a number of the prophets and the biblical characters, when we look at the story of Christ, we see a much different story. We see a much different result. We see the message of, of giving up, of leaving, of abandoning for something different. And we see that while this may not seem like something better in our point of view, we see in God's point of view and at the end of these stories of the people that were faithful that this is part of God's plan. This is, in fact, part of God's blessing. Christ followers are often asked to leave something behind. We see this with, with the disciples. Uh, Jesus called his disciples and a number of them left their work. They left their fishing post and they just went on and, and went and followed Jesus. Uh, we see in other instances people who had a high cost to bring. The rich young ruler comes to mind. He was asked to take all of his possessions, sell them, and give them to the poor. He was also asked to leave something, but it wasn't the same thing. And there's always a cost. And part of the cost is realizing that God's blessing won't always rid you of adversity. And while this might be the principle of the story, there's an application that's as true for Adam, or excuse me, as true for Abram as it was for Joseph. It's as true for the disciples as it was for the rich young ruler. And it's just as true for you as it is for me. And the principle has to do with your willingness to leave when God asks you to. Well, we see that God's blessing may not always rid us of adversity, but the implication is that then we must be willing to enter into God's blessing. We must be willing to leave when God asks us to. The question is not whether or not you will, you will move away from your family as Abram was asked to, whether you will sell every possession that you have and give it to the poor as a rich young ruler was. The question is not whether you will save up uh, your entire salary for an alabaster jar and, and present it uh, somehow to anoint the feet of Jesus like the woman did because each person's cost looks different. So the question is, will you willingly surrender what God is asking you to give up? Are you willing to accept the adversity that comes with God's blessing? Will you willingly endure the hardships and the obstacles that God's blessings may set up in your life. 
Another word that, that might be helpful to use as we think about this action is that word of surrender. This was the attitude of Jesus when he came to earth. He, he surrendered his will, his desires in human form in order to fulfill God's plan for his life. And a lot of times um, we have this, this same understanding that this is the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is surrendering. It's leaving. It's giving up. We're going to conclude uh, this morning's message by singing a song that's called Surrender. Giving up. Leaving. And the question that I want to leave you with is, will you be willing to leave what God might ask you to give up? Now, for some of you, he may have already asked you to give up something. He may have done this eight years ago. He may have done this four weeks ago. And it might be something that you're still grappling with. Maybe it took Abram quite a bit of time as well. For some of you, there, there might be a new revelation that God's going to provide you with today, something that you need to surrender to Him. Others of you, it, it might be totally different. You may not hear God asking you to leave something for many, many years from now. And it's going to be different. What He asked me to surrender is very likely going to be different than what He's going to ask you to surrender. But the point is that we each need to show a willingness to surrender if we are going to be obedient followers of Christ. We don't know how long Abram weighed the cost for leaving his home for the blessing of God, but I bet that he thought about that decision many times in his life. Many times after the fact, I bet he looked back and thought, was it worth it? Did I give up too much? Will God's blessing and promise ever come true in my life? And as we see with, with the end of Abram's story and the legacy and the promises of God, we see that God is always faithful. If our blessing was dependent on humanity, well, I don't know if that would be a cost that I'd be willing to take. But when we recount the faithfulness of God through each and every generation for those who willingly surrender to Him, the cost is always worth it. The cost that He paid is always worth it. I once uh, read a bumper sticker that says, He who dies with the most toys still dies. And I think that's appropriate when we look about this concept of surrender. Uh, Jesus said it much better. He said, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Each of us has a choice. Will you be willing to leave when God asks you to give something up? Some might call it an exchange. Some might call it weighing the cost. Some might call it a sacrifice. But it might be most accurate to actually call it part of God's blessing. Because God's blessing won't always rid you of adversity, but God is always faithful and his blessing is always worth the cost.